Hello and welcome to Come Follow Up. My name is Daniel Becerra and this is Barbara Morgan Gardner. As scholars and religious educators, we're always searching for ways to help individuals and families apply the scriptures more deeply in their lives. Here on Come Follow Up, we look to enrich your daily studies of the Come Follow Me resource as we discuss life-changing principles and study the words of the prophets. We hope that our dialogue today can inspire you so that through the Spirit, you can uncover truths, experience new insights, and deepen your personal conversion. So we're studying Moroni chapters one through six today. In these chapters, we see that Moroni hides. He continues to record his writings. He won't deny the Christ. He refuses to do so. He also records some sacred ordinances and discussions that happens between Jesus and his apostles when he visited the Nephites uh, relating to the sacrament and the conferral of the Holy Ghost. He talks about the importance of fellowshipping others at church. And he also talks about the importance of meeting often and nourishing each other in the good word of God. So there's obviously a lot of things that we can talk about today, but we want to focus on three things in particular. The nature of rituals and ordinances and how we can get the most out of them, uh, what it means to really worship together as a community, and understand what it means to have the Spirit of God with us. So today, in order to enhance our study of these chapters specifically, we have invited our guest, Dan Belknap. Dan, he welcome. is a wonderful <laughs> friend, and we'd like to invite him to the stage with us. Have a seat. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. Thank you. So Dan is a professor in the Department of Ancient Scripture at Brigham Young University, and he has written extensively on the topic of rituals, among many other topics. And on a personal note, Dan was actually one of my professors back in the day. Uh, so any kind of weaknesses in whatever I do here? Um, it is my fault. Yeah. I'll accept it. I'll take it. <laughs> no. I'll take it. No, Dan's an excellent, uh, excellent professor, excellent friend. So thanks for being here, Dan. No problem. So, Dan, I'm curious, before we get into our, our discussion, is there anything that kind of stuck out to you as especially meaningful in these chapters or any large themes that uh, you saw that kind of jumped out to you? Well, I think the three points that you've decided to talk about today really do hit the gist of them. Mm. What is striking is it's clear from Moroni, I mean, he's, he knows he's got limited time. So there's something that he's learned between the destruction of the Nephites mm -hmm. and his continued existence, for lack of a better term. Yeah. And within that, I find it significant that he has decided that the ordinances and, and how they passed on the ordinances and how they participated in the ordinances is among the first things that he goes yeah. to. And he even acknowledges that in chapter, if we can go to Moroni chapter 1, verse 4, I mean, he essentially says, I didn't expect to, I don't know if he didn't expect to be alive or something like that, but he says in verse 4, I write a few more things contrary to that which I had supposed, for I had supposed to not have written any more. But I write a few more things that perhaps they may be of some worth unto my brethren, the Lamanites, in some future day, according to the will of the Lord. And then he chooses, you know, he, know, he, he knows his days are numbered, but he chooses to write on these specific topics uh, because he thinks they might have some worth. So maybe we can kind of draw out the worth that we see in those. Yeah, I was thinking, Dan, we talked a little bit before we started here about Elder Bednar, and he mm -hmm. gave a recent talk in 2016, and he actually defines ordinance as this. He says, ordinances are sacred acts that have spiritual purpose eternal significance, and are related to God's laws and statutes. And then he continues, all saving ordinances and the ordinance of the sacrament must be authorized by one who holds those requisite priesthood keys. Dan, why is that so important for us to understand the definition of ordinance as we're reading and studying in these chapters? Well, he goes on in the next paragraph of that talk, if I'm remembering it right, in which he points out that it's more than ritual and it's more than symbol. And I think that's kind of a big one. Oftentimes when we think of our ritual behavior or the ordinances that we're performing, we often think about in terms of what is the symbolism of this act that I'm, that I'm engaged in. Mm -hmm. 
But what Elder Bednar is also suggesting is there's more to it than just the symbolism that lies behind it. If, it, if it's just a symbol, then there's an element of this where if you can think through the symbol, mm -hmm. then why do you have to do it? Mm -hmm. But we do believe that these ordinances that we perform are necessary in some ways, even when we're not 100% sure what the symbolism of it is, right? The ordinances themselves have power. If I understand you correctly, you're saying that yes, rituals gesture beyond themselves in the sense that, you know, baptism, we're supposed to be thinking about being born again or resurrection or things like that. But at the same time, there's, there's power in the actual ordinance in participating in that. That is exactly right. Yeah, that's great. And I know you've spent a lot of time um, uh, studying ritual in the ancient world as well. I'm wondering if that has shaped at all how you tend to view our modern day rituals like the sacrament or baptism or conferring the Holy Ghost or anything like that. Those in the ancient world believed in a world that was alive. And that's maybe the best way I can describe it. It was alive. Things had will. There were powers out there, right? Uh, negative forces that were fight, they were fighting against the adversary and those that followed the adversary in a way that led them to see these actions that they performed having power in their lives. So they recognized that the behavior and the acts that they performed had power behind them in a way that I think in some ways our more modern era has just simply lost. Yeah. In fact, Dan, on, I was going to say on this note, especially with women recently, the brethren and leading um, officers of the church that are women have talked a lot about the power that comes to both women and men as they keep their covenants mm -hmm. in association with these ordinances. So that's actually very real today and something that is being emphasized because we have, in a sense, lost it. We've, we've forgotten the power associated with the ordinances right. that we do. And I think one of the things that I learned from, from these chapters as well, and I, I think I'm reading this right, is that sometimes getting the most out of ritual depends on what we bring to the ritual. So for example, in Moroni 6.2, Moroni is writing about the, the qualifications for people who came for baptism. And it says that these people came forth with a broken heart and a contrite spirit. So I'm wondering, I mean, wh what can we learn from this? What does it mean, first of all, to have a broken heart and a contrite spirit? And how can we prepare ourselves to get the most out of our ritualistic experiences? Actually, Elder Porter has a great quote on that. The Savior's perfect submission to the Eternal Father is the very essence of a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Christ's example teaches us that a broken heart is an eternal attribute of godliness. When our hearts are broken, we are completely open to the Spirit of God and recognize our dependence on Him for all that we have and all that we are. The sacrifice so entails is a sacrifice of pride in all its forms. Like malleable clay in the hands of a skilled potter, the brokenhearted can be molded and shaped in the hands of the master. So what stands out to you in regard to this quote, and especially in terms of what Daniel has brought up from chapter 6 of Moroni? It was once explained to me that this idea of having a broken heart could be related to breaking a horse. If you have a wild or a feral horse who's in need of taming, you ride them and you make them become accustomed to that experience of following the directions of somebody else, and in that way they become broken. So having a broken heart, in the same way that the Savior submitted his entire will to that of the Father in order to give his life, we give our lives when we have a broken heart. And I love that idea because it, it teaches that it's not just, I mean, when I hear the words broken heart and contrite spirit, I just think of kind of regret or sorrow or something like that. But I love this idea of submission and really conforming your will to God's will. That's what it's really about. So I really loved in the quote that it said it's dropping all of your pride. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that when we decide that we want to perform these covenants and ordinances with our Savior, that's an act of humility. It's realizing that um, we can't do it on our own. We have to be connected 
with the Savior through those covenants. Because it's not the covenants themselves that save us. Mm-hmm. It's the fact that our covenants connect us to our Savior who then saves us. Yeah, excellent. The, the word contrite is a Latin word and it means to crush. And what's fascinating about that is we oftentimes think they switched out. They were doing something before and now have to offer broken heart and contrite spirit. But go back to the Old Testament, go back to 2 Nephi chapter 2, and it's quite clear that broken heart and contrite spirit has been what's been required for any believer mm-hmm. since the beginning. Yeah. So what does that mean? Well, that crushed, that, that concept of being crushed, in the Hebrew, since you see this term showing up in the Psalms, It's the same words that's also showing up in Isaiah 53 to describe Christ who was bruised for our iniquities. Mm -hmm. It means to be literally crushed. And I think that ties into the concept of sacrifice, as Elder Porter pointed out, which itself means to change, to become holy. Mm -hmm. So ritual has a primary function of transforming someone from one state to another, right? That transformation. And a broken heart and contrite spirit reflects this idea of you being willing to transform every aspect of yourself. So the sacrament then becomes an opportunity for us to transform. Mm -hmm. And the beauty of sacrifice is nobody else can transform us except for ourselves, Mm -hmm. right? If I make you do it, then it's not really a sacrifice. Mm -hmm. So the sacrament is both a very communal thing and a very personalized and individual thing where we recognize the inclusivity of who can be a part of Christ's family while recognizing the necessity of our transformation Mm -hmm. totally. So the next topic we'd like to discuss is in Moroni chapter 6, where Moroni specifically talks about the importance of community and worship. To get started with this topic, let's go to the video. Hi, my name is Lauren. I'm from Salem, Oregon. My question was, how can we make sacrament meetings more inclusive and less judgmental, particularly for those who might not be actively taking the sacrament right now? So that is a fantastic question. And I think looking at Moroni chapter six, Moroni actually does talk about the responsibility of members of the church. Like we go to these verses here. In verse five, Moroni teaches us, and the church did meet together oft to fast and to pray and to speak one with another concerning the welfare of their souls. I would imagine for many members of the church um, who come, if they are feeling in any way unworthy to be partaking of the sacrament, that would be an area where we as members of church need to gather together and care for the welfare of each other's souls. That's a difficult situation for many people that we need to be sensitive of. And I appreciate that question simply because of the honesty of of what she's saying there. And it reminds me of uh, something Elder Bednar said one time. He was talking about how essentially great a woman his wife is in her her example. And And what he said is that every time she goes to church, um, she prays, you know, who needs to be hugged? Who needs to reach out? What can I do to reach out to somebody today? And then um, he told this story about how sometimes right after the, the closing prayer, she'll run over to somebody and say, how are you doing? Or give them a hug or give them a word of encouragement. And this idea that she's so oriented at, at edifying and lifting one another's up, like the idea of judging other people or looking down on them, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't cross her mind. I think that's a good example of how we can orient ourselves to others to recognize that going to church is not just about us, but it's about community. It's about finding those who need lifting up and seeking to lift them up. I went through these chapters earlier and asked the question, what responsibilities do we have to one another uh, in the church, according to Moroni. Most of them appear in Moroni 6. Uh, so we're commanded to meet together often, to pray and fast for the welfare of one another, uh, to assure there's no iniquity among us, to forgive others, and to be led by the Spirit in our worship. I'm wondering, in what ways have you come to better value or have you come to better understand the value of worshiping together? Or maybe in what ways are you still trying to have a, a communal worship, even though we have, we're in these unique circumstances? In what ways are you reaching out to other people in a way to help them? 
I think with the technology, the way it's, it's come, you know, we have FaceTime and Zoom meetings and, and things like that. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times it's just as easy as just dialing up somebody and having a little video chat saying, hey, how you doing? I know for me it's been um, really important to um, tune in to my personal revelation. Um, learning who to turn to, having a Zoom call, uh, just calling some, someone instead of texting. That's been important, I think, just within my own family, but also with the members of our ward. What, what I find interesting about that, it, at least this discussion, is, is bringing up a, a very powerful set of verses for me. I, I've always loved section 121, mm -hmm. which talks about how to exercise priesthood, right? Yeah. And thanks to recent talks by President uh, Oaks and others, we recognize priesthood power can be held really by anyone. And when you read those verses, what comes across in those verses is ultimately priesthood is expressed through, through your sincerity, right? I mean, there's those set of characteristics at the end of 121 that talks about those who exercise the priesthood. What are you doing? Pure love, without guile, without, right? All of these things. It's, there's a sincerity that comes across. It's interesting to me that it's made it possible for us to explore how to exercise the priesthood power, of both men and women, in ways that maybe we just never have done before. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I agree. I think, in a sense, the Lord is is kind of even helping us to take take a step up where we are we are in need of knowing each other at a different level, rather than just going and simply visiting somebody or saying hi quickly at church. We are needing to know the individual needs of people. We're needing to know their their wants, their desires, their struggles at a different level because we need to get to the core of things because people are needing people like we haven't before. People are, are hungry for that relationship. Well, it's interesting. The word worship itself, right? The, the root of the word is worth. I mean, that's what it comes from. It's, it's worth plus ship, which is a difficult word. Two sets of consonants that are really tricky to make in English right next to each other. Try but that, Dan? Worth ship, right? <laughs> Say it five times as fast as you can. <laughs> but it's worth. And that suggests that worship, the, the heart of worship is an experience where you're recognizing worth either the worth of God or recognizing God knows your worth or the worth of your fellow man. And, and perhaps that would be an invitation for this Lauren in this video and for any of us, for, for any reason, is to remember our worth. I mean, the reminder to go back to section 18 of the Doctrine and Covenants and section 19 of the Doctrine and Covenants, where the Lord is reminding us the price he paid for us and our individual worth and our individual value to him. If, if we as members of the church, regardless of our worthiness before the Lord could remember our value and our worth to him, it would make a big difference, allowing us to see horizontally instead of vertically. And on that point of how this, how our current circumstances offer us unique ways to engage with one another within the context of worship, we actually have a video uh, that speaks to that point. Hi, I'm Shelley Townsend. I'm from Charlotte, North Carolina. My mom and I were baptized when I was about 10. My dad was not baptized, and although he's shown some fleeting interest in coming to church, it's never been a consistent uh, thing. So when the pandemic hit, we did as many families did, and we decided to include other family members that were not living with us in our study. And so each Sunday before we actually sit down for our study, we individually study and bring to the discussion one or two things that stood out to us. Now, my dad does not do that part of the Come Follow Me, but it's been a wonderful blessing to have him hear us share our testimonies, 
spiritual experiences that we've had and insights and have him consistently come to church with us every Sunday. Yeah, and frankly, that's an experience, not necessarily my father, but others that I love, that I have had in the last few months, participating in the sacrament with people who haven't. And it's been a huge blessing for me as well. We're going to look now at what Moroni said about the sacrament and specifically that promise at the end that they may always have his spirit to be with them. So if we could, let's go to Moroni chapter four. And this is specifically in verse three. Um, this is the sacrament prayer on the bread. Uh, we covenant that we're willing to take upon us the name of the son, that we can always have the spirit to be with us. Um, Dan, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on this chapter and these verses. Yeah, I find that it's powerful, not only in terms of the promise about the spirit, right? The, uh, the having the spirit with us always. But it's this language here, I think, that is um, that jumps out at me. And to bless and sanctify this bread to the souls of all those who partake of it, that they may eat in remembrance of the body of thy son. Now, we hear that all the time, maybe every... Sunday or every time that we perform the sacrament. Mm. But for the Nephites, this seems to have had a particular meaning, right? For them, this wasn't a remembrance of Christ's body on a cross. Mm -hmm. They had an experience with Christ as a resurrected being. In fact, down in the Come Follow Me back for, I think it was 3rd Nephi 17 through 19 in there, there was an activity for the primary and for the children. And in that activity, they actually had them cut out little pictures of Jesus, make a little book out of it. And some of the pictures were of the, of the Christ before, I mean, of Christ in the New Testament and things, but a lot of the pictures were actually at the end and it was the resurrected savior that they were to remember during the sacrament and the second coming of Jesus Christ, even looking forward to his, his coming and focusing on, as you're saying, the body of Jesus Christ, perhaps in a different way than we sometimes do. Well, section 27 does that, doesn't it? When it talks about the sacrament in section 27, it points us towards a meal event that we're all going to have with everyone gathered together, this inclusive meal with all of these prophets and apostles and, and then all those whom God hath given Christ, right? Which is what he talked about in 3 Nephi 18. Even those that can't partake of the sacrament, they're mine if they're repentant. And to see that in the Book of Mormon, it's of, of a, a present Christ, not one that is dead, but but a resurrected Christ that they engaged with and interacted with. How would that change the way we think about the sacrament if we thought of it not just as commemoration of suffering, but of a commemoration of actual interaction with yeah. Christ? Yeah, and I was just thinking as you were talking about, you know, how does reflecting and pondering on Christ in different ways, how does that affect me differently? When I think of his suffering and death, I think of, you know, it kind of makes me sad a little bit. I feel gratitude. Um, I feel sorry for my sins, but when I think of the resurrected body, it, it, it's a different experience. It gives me hope. It helps me to look forward. Mm -hmm. It balances out the experience, I guess, and helps you relate to God and Christ in a different way. Dan, I have a question for you. How do you think that remembering the Savior is connected to having his spirit with us? I think memory determines the way you see the present in many ways. And so that memory can affect the way you look back and see things. I, I do believe that's one of the great values of the principle of gratitude. But gratitude to me is revelatory just as much as prophecy is. One just points you towards the future, gratitude points you towards the past. It reveals to you the way in which God has been, been involved in your life. President Nelson last conference talked about the importance of having that larger perspective, right? He talked about myoptic. Right. And the idea that lies behind that is, is you can't see. If you can expand that view, well, gratitude expands that view. It allows you to see the past in a completely different light. 
revelatory nature of that past. You see the way God's been involved in your life, which then gives you the strength to move forward. I think of when I go on a hike, there are times you reach a point when you're like, there's no way I'm going up this set of switchbacks. I don't know where the end is. This is, I'm done. But if you turn around and look behind you, you can see actually how far you are and how high you are, and that gives you that strength. So that revelatory glimpse of what has happened allows you the strength to move forward into what hasn't yet. So how has the Spirit helped you to remember Jesus Christ? I think it's almost backwards. I think remembering Him will help us feel Him. Yeah. So if we can remember times that we have felt the Spirit, it's like feeling it all over again. I once had a stake president ask the congregation in the state conference, he said, what takes for granted water the most? And we all thought that was kind of an odd question. He said, a fish takes water for granted the most. And he pointed out that we all have the Spirit with us so much that we don't even recognize that we have it. If it were to leave, it would be more noticeable. I think we just need to sit and be still and allow it to um, move us. Yeah, I think that's a little bit of what Moroni is, is trying to help us to also remember is the importance of having the Spirit with that. That is the promise of the sacrament. If you do these things, you will always have the Spirit to be with you. I mean, a member of the Godhead always with us for, for most people in the world, that is inconceivable. But we as members of the church believe that, teach it, and live by it, recognizing that as baptized members of the church, we have been given, if we receive it, the gift of the Holy Ghost. So in terms of how, we've been talking about kind of the value of the Spirit and what it means to have it with us. I'm wondering if we can focus a little bit on what it takes to receive that gift. And one of the things that we promise to do is to be willing to take upon ourselves the name of the Son. And the question I have for you is, do you think there's any significance to that fact that I covenant to be willing to take upon myself the name of Christ as opposed to actually just covenanting to take it upon myself? Well, covenanting to take it upon us doesn't mean that we will. Mm -hmm. I can say, you know, I'm going to do something or somebody's going to do something, and that doesn't mean that it's going to automatically come into effect. I also think that the assumption of the name of Christ has a little bit more to do with, like, the actual uh, relationship that kind of our, our salvation, our entering into the kingdom of God will have because Jesus Christ is the one who through his perfect life qualifies for that. Mm -hmm. In order to qualify ourselves, we will have to renounce sort of parts of ourselves, specifically that natural or carnal, and take upon ourselves the name of Christ. So it's not really something we're doing perfectly quite yet. Yes. We are preparing to. Yeah. Whenever I have questions about what words mean in the Book of Mormon, there's different things you can do. You can search the same word in all the places that it appears. You can also look it up in Webster's 1828 Dictionary. This is, represents the English language at about the time Joseph Smith was translating the Book of Mormon. Uh, so what I did is I looked up the word willing and said, okay, what does this mean? Can it mean different things? How can that help us to understand our responsibility um, regarding uh, the name of Christ. And it has essentially three connotations. Willing means free, so essentially you're able to do it. Um, consenting, you agree to do it. And pleased or desirous, meaning that you want to do it. Um, so if you were to think of, um, so for example, the draft. I am physically able to serve in a war if I need to. I'm registered from the draft, so I'm willing to serve in a war if I need to. I have agreed to, I've signed the paper, but I don't necessarily want to. 
Okay, and that's part of being willing. So I think what's going on here is when we covenant to be willing to take upon ourselves Christ's name, it's not just a capacity or a commitment, but a desire to do so. I mean, at least for me, that helps me recognize that keeping these covenants is about continual effort, continual struggle, continual reaching out to God. Thank you so much for being here. It's been a great discussion. We really appreciate, especially these teachings of Moroni in chapters one through six. Dan, we appreciate your insights, your experience, and frankly, your expertise as you've studied these scriptures in depth. We've learned a lot from you. So we appreciate you coming here in the audience. Thank you again for not not only being here, but the spirit that you have brought with with you as well. We recognize that you are doing your best to willingly take upon yourselves the name of Christ. And to those of you at home, we thank you for your comments and questions that you've sent to us via social media. We hope to see you sometime in the studio, but if you can't join us, uh, we hope you'll watch next week on Come Follow Up. Thanks. Come Follow Up is a production of BYU Broadcasting.